This episode is brought to you by Indie Insights, our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to independent film. Inside, you'll find tools, tips, and tricks vetted by industry professionals, independent films that will inspire your creativity, filmmaking events where you can rub elbows with filmmakers just like you, and so much more. The best part of it all, it's absolutely free. All you have to do is go to www.banzai.film forward slash subscribe. And within a few clicks, you'll be part of our newsletter community. Again, that's www.banzai.film forward slash subscribe to get Indie Insights, a free bi-weekly newsletter from Chris and Nick at Bonsai Creative. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hello, everyone. My name is Tiffany Schlain, and I'm a mother, sister, daughter, friend, filmmaker, uh, artist, author. Um, A lot of people know me because I founded the Webby Awards, and I've had um, quite a few films at Sundance, and I'm working in new mediums lately of sculpture and light boxes, which are very cinematic, and I'm working on a new film on the adolescent brain. Tiffany Schlain, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Hello, hello. I have so much to go over with you. I have so many questions. I have so many notes. We've done such fun research on you. I am tempted to just jump right into the conversation. Oh, please. That's the best kind. Not to mention just your infectious personality, honestly. Like you are the type (laughs) of person that... I could waste an entire day with just talking. <laughs> We'd have fun. We'd have fun. We have a good dialogue for sure. That's right. But just to give this audience a slightly deeper sense of, of why I say what I just said, I'm going to just read from a short bio and then we'll get, we'll get rocking and rolling. Oh, okay. and of course this is from the internet. So if anything needs to be corrected, updated, just let me know. Okay. Honored by Newsweek. As one of the women shaping the 21st century, Tiffany Schlain is an artist, Emmy-nominated filmmaker, founder of the Webby Awards, and author of the national best-selling book, 24-6, giving up screens one day a week to get more time, creativity, and connection, which won the Marshall McLuhan Outstanding Book Award. Shortly before the pandemic, the Museum of Modern Art in New York City premiered her one-woman show, Dear Human about the relationship between humanity and technology. When the world shut down during COVID, Schlain spent the time walking in the Redwoods and began working in large-scale sculpture, which you just mentioned, photography and mixed media, exploring themes of scale, perspective, and time. She was selected as artist-in-residence by Shack 15 at the San Francisco Ferry Building, and began creating an exhibition which debuted on the top floor of the Ferry Building called Human Nature. The exhibition was presented by the National Women's History Museum, based in Washington, D.C., and Women Connect for Good. Working across film, art, and performance, Shlane's work explores the intersection of feminism, creativity, neuroscience, technology, philosophy, and nature. She has had multiple films premiere at Sundance, just like it says on her hat, was selected by the Albert Einstein Foundation as one of the people carrying on his legacy and received the Neil Postman Award for Career Achievement in Public Intellectual Activity. The U.S. State Department has used Shlane's films to represent the U.S. at embassies around the world. She has held the artist residencies, or she has held artist residencies, excuse me, at the Headland Center for the Arts, the American Museum of Jewish History, and the Da Vinci Museum, 
which created an exhibit of all of her work on gender and society. In addition to bringing the Human Nature Exhibition to new locations in 2023, she is working on a new exhibition that will open in Los Angeles in 2024. Wow. What it was nice to hear you read it. I was like, okay, that's what I've done. And that's what I'm working on. <laughs> it is a, a little bit like reading an obit, right? Well, the bios are, I always felt like bios w- would probably be a lot more interesting if it also included some of the things I tried and failed at. And I think that would add a flavor because you're on the bios really are only what really worked, but just as interesting, <laughs> that's a good point. Are, just as interesting are things that you tried to do that maybe didn't, you know, that were pretty pivotal. <laughs> Oh, and that is my, that's Rosie. Let me give her a bone. Wait one second. All good. This is a. Rosie's a beautiful golden doodle. Golden doodle. 75 pounds of love. This audience knows that I have two doodles as well. A chocolate. Big animal lover there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're going to compare photos at the end. Yeah. Anyways. So um, (laughs) anyways, but bios are interesting because I actually believe um, anyone listening, if you think of your own bio, There should be one line in there that's aspirational. Like I think Mm. both it should be what you've done and where you want to be headed. If it, there's some big project, you should always mention it in there. Even if you haven't done it yet, she's he or she, or they're starting work on because I find just like putting things down in text and trying to articulate it, help make it happen. And uh, making it is the title of your show, which is right. Yeah, we got to make so, it. It's a double entendre. I'm so. I mean, eventually, what I always thought was going to be my first book was kind of how to make things happen. Because now, mm-hmm. in my career, I have you know spent many years, you know, independent film, um, founding and establishing the Webby Awards, and a book and theater performances and an art show now, and they're all different mediums. But ultimately, how to take something from an initial idea or even creating the space to have an initial idea, identifying the idea, putting the idea out into the world and then linking it back to your other projects is a whole process that I I will write a book about. There you go. There's my aspirational line in my bio. (laughs) I will be writing a book about it at some point because I think that um, that's one of the things I love about getting older is seeing patterns in processes. And I definitely at this point have a a process and a pattern that I take ideas through to make them live in the world. Yeah, I agree. I think that that might be a through line in our conversation today. And I, I have to say that's a brilliant observation about bios. I've read hundreds of bios on this podcast and I never thought about the fact that no one ever talks about the things that didn't work because it just doesn't seem appropriate for a bio, but it, but actually it, it is part of your, but it, it is, is your bio. Especially like if it really mm-hmm. made you stumble career wise or made mm-hmm. you question things or going in a different direction or what you learned from it. Like, you know, one of my very first big projects I tried at 22 graduating from college after doing really well in school. And like, I'm like Spike Lee had just made do the right thing. And I was like, I'm going to yeah. make a, I'm going to make an indie feature. And I tried way too ambitious of a project for being 22 years old. when I think about it now, but I, I was, you know, it was big and bold and, and it got a lot of attention. And then I failed big and bold it, it to myself. And I felt like I'd let everyone down. And I learned more from that experience that I still think about because I could taste that feeling like it was yesterday. And I, I think it gives me incredible appreciation for where I am now and empathy for anyone going through a hard time. And there were so many learnings from it. So if bios had, you know, one big thing you tried and failed at and what you learned from it, I think that would be powerful. Just out of curiosity, is the film you're talking about, the film you mentioned in your 2010 UC Berkeley commencement speech? speech? Yes, it is. It is. So is it still in your garage unedited? It is, but it's so funny you say that because I just got chills when you said that. Yes, it is. And I eventually, I just last week, you know, it's all in 16 millimeter film because that's what I shot it in. And just last week I wrote, I'm in a women film director group. It's a great, like, we meet once a month and there's lots of emails throughout the month about advice for things. And somebody was saying, Oh, I just found this great place that transfers 16 millimeter film to digital. And I was like, what's the number? What's the email? And I wrote, I'm like, how much would it cost? I mean, I have so many hours of this feature film unfinished. And eventually I would like to turn it into a short film about 
trying big things about failing and what you can learn from them. So like, actually not, it will not be a feature length film anymore because all my actors are probably like, <laughs> they, they look very different, but I, I eventually will do that. And I don't really have this time or space for it now, but it definitely feels like it will be a full circle experience to revisit that footage in whatever form it is. I mean, it's been sitting in the garage. Like I was actually thinking last week, gosh, I don't even know. I don't know if you know much about like celluloid film, but when mm -hmm. we shot the film, you also shoot the audio on a separate mag strip and then you have to right. sync them together. And yep. I was thinking, um, is that even, like, the, is the information to sync that together still even exists? I don't know. So yeah, it, it would, is. You can get it. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, is the documentation, cause like we had, I mean, I'm, I haven't even used this word in so long, but we would do like film logs, like when we do the yeah, clap and yeah. I don't even know if we could reconstruct the whole film, but anyways, it would be it's enough. A, it would be a beast. Yeah. It would be a beast, but super satisfying because you know, I'm sure everybody that's listening and maybe yourself has one project that maybe they didn't finish that is symbolic and to kind of revisit and turn it into something else seems like a very cathartic, it would be very cathartic for me to actually, um, turn it into something. Yeah. I think everyone listening to this can relate to that. And you're, <laughs> and you're right. I certainly have a few things. I, I actually think also too, if you're a good copywriter, you can have some fun with, with exactly. it as well. Like I'm just thinking to myself writing a bio that said in, and in 1990, yeah, Chris tried to dance with the high school sweetheart, Kelly Compenpet and stepped <laughs> on her toes three times. They never spoke again. And then, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, just like something, something ridiculous. Add a little like humility and humor. I mean, I think, you know, it's funny when I speak at a lot of conferences and they read that bio you just read or some iteration of it. Yeah. And I always like, I never know what to do. Like, I never know how to look either. Like, I'm kind of like, am I, I'm a little bit blushing and I'm like, it feels like we're talking about this third person, but it is me. And I never know quite how, what I'm supposed to look like when, as they're reading it. So it's a funny thing if you had humor in there. And also this is the other funny thing about bios is they're all written in the third person, but you obviously yeah. wrote them. You wrote it. You wrote so it's it. Like, yeah. It's like, it feels like it's this fake out situation. Like, okay, I wrote that. And, but I'm acting like I didn't write that. That's funny. <laughs> That's well, that's the best. That's so true. That's so true. But, and I mean, I, IMDb profiles are the uh, are the like the king of that. Exactly. King, king and queen of, of that. Exactly uh, what what you're talking about. Like it's yeah. obvious they wrote it. Exactly. And then at the end, but what they do on IMDb is they'll put at the end of the bio or, or the summary or whatever, like written by, and it won't be them. It'll like it'll right. be like. But of course pinned. they approved it and edited it and like yeah. But I mean, but bios are also really important. Like, like I was saying earlier, oh, yeah. I'm constantly refreshing my bio. And actually, because I do a lot of different things, like when people ask me to speak or like whatever, I'm like, okay, I have to really think of the audience and I will do different versions for different places. Like, oh, they're going to be interested in my neuroscience work or they're going to be interested in my women's rights work or yeah. artwork. And I will highlight or low light certain things. So I, I look at a bio as this evolving aspirational. It's also very adaptable. And I really, I try to think of the audience. Um, and the one that you read is a very general, like one I'm using right now, but I think bios are really a very important aspect of making it. It's like, this is what I've done. This is what I want to do, or this is what I'm working on. And like I said, I always put what I'm working on, even if I can't officially talk about it, I will try to allude to it enough because you'd be surprised, you know, somebody listening might be like, oh, I mean, I've had so many kind of points of magic happen when people, I'll put one like new thing I'm working on in a bio and then somebody be like, oh, I see you're working on a film on the adolescent brain. Like I just, as you were reading that, I realized it didn't say I'm working on a new film on the adolescent brain. Did it say that? I don't think so. It just I said 2024. This is an art exhibit, but I'm also in production yeah. on a movie, a uh, documentary on the adolescent brain. And I really should put it in there because who knows? Somebody read it. Oh, I did research. on. I want to know what she's working on. And then they'll contact me and the film will get better or they'll become a collaborator or distribute distribution partner. So yeah. I really believe you're putting feelers out into the world with bios too. It's very true. And full disclosure to this audience, we're having this conversation on May the 15th, <laughs> obviously 2023. And it's kind of a special time for you. I mean, I know your birthday passed on the 8th of April, but 
this is also the the 14 year anniversary of of your beloved father Leonard, you know, passing yeah. away recently. He passed away on the 11th of May. Oh, yeah. And the reason I, outside of the date that I thought about it and thought we should just honor it and just say mm, it, thank you, is also this this saying you you talk about from the Talmud, which is when you teach your kids or when you teach your children, you teach your children's children. Mm. And I've heard you say that, and I just thought that would be a good place to start with would just be with 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 Leonard, and oh, and what are some that. of the things that he taught you that you teach your kids. And what was it like growing up with him? Oh, thank you. Yeah, I thought about him so much. Um, in the Jewish tradition, you you honor the date someone died and not the day they were born because it's the mm. life they lived. So May 11th was the day he died. And he was this incredible, vibrant thinker, human. And I visited his um, grave with my brother last week. And we put on his tombstone, you know, it's like beloved father and surgeon and teacher. And then we put the thing he used to always say to us, he used to say it in Latin to us, but at Astra, at Astra, which means reach for the stars. And so we mm. put on his tombstone, reach for the stars. And I think that idea is the biggest thing. He, he always taught us to strive and reach beyond what we knew, be curious, do bold things, try big things. And so I think that's the biggest thing that he really instilled in us. And he, uh, my mother's a psychologist and my father wrote and operated on the brain. So I really mm. grew up with both parents teaching me a lot about the way the mind works and biologically the way the brain has evolved. And so that's been a, a focus of a lot of my work. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, I'm definitely a, a, the, a child of my parents. <laughs> <laughs> he would be so excited. I had many conversations with him last week in my mind about like the projects I'm working on. I'm on a particularly exciting period in my career, just with the the projects I'm working on. I'm just so excited about the, all of them. And um, yeah, he's very much in me and he's with me all the time. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if you've had someone really close to you pass. Are both of your parents here? No, my mom passed in 2007. And, oh. uh, you know, yesterday was Mother's Day. And oh, yeah. I have another friend um, that's mother passed just last year. Mm. And, you know, one way we are able to talk about it, and this is a, might be a guy thing, but guys try to channel pain through humor. Yeah. And so we have this thing called the Dead Moms Club, and we're only <laughs> two members. So we're in a group chat with two people who have their moms and their dads. <laughs> And we don't have our moms, so we're in the dead moms club. <laughs> oh my god! So, but then, it, but then it allows us to talk about it, yeah. you know, especially for him who just lost his mom. Who so. just, well, I was gonna say because yeah. you're more in my, you know, where when it, well, first of all, humor is a great way to deal with any kind of trauma or anything that's difficult. Like in a lot yeah. of my movies, I'm always putting in a line to make people laugh right before I want to go deep on something because I think it opens you up to something you might feel closed about. And, but I know, and I'm curious if you feel this way, but my dad's so with me, like he's with me yeah. all the time. Like I literally just feel like he's just in a completely different way that he's not phys I can't hug him, which I miss, but he's with me all the time. I just yeah. feel like, do you feel that way? I don't know if yeah. that's just. Yeah, I do. I do. I find that, um, I talk about her more than I realize I'm talking about her. Mm. And, that's and that's beautiful. And that's that, one of the ways that I know yeah. that, that she is like, it just, ah, it's like I things that. that happen, things she said, uh, things that happen in life. Oh, my mom used to do that. My mom used to say that. Oh, that's mom, a, well, know, they, yeah. that's a beautiful way to bring them. I always think when I'm doing something that my dad used to love to do, he's with me. Like, that's how I bring him up more. I actually kind of, I didn't cry last week. Like, I, I find that the, the tears, the grief part really recedes and that it more, I mean, there's certain particular moments where maybe something with one of my children, I'll think, oh, I wish you could experience this. But mostly it's just like, I think I bring my dad up a lot. And, you know, it's interesting because my mom who's alive and sometimes I feel bad, like, oh, am I talking about my dad more? But I think mm -hmm. to what you're saying, it's because that's a, it's trickier to bring him to the world, but that that's a way to do it more where my mom's physically here. Um, right. And, you know, I, I try to talk about death a lot actually with my kids, because I think, you know, 
like I visited my dad's grave and, and my husband and I have plots right near my dad. And I, I, I'm comforted that someday my kids will go there to visit me and maybe have a moment. And I think our culture doesn't talk about death. And like we, there's so much, like, I think we should talk about it and them and more because there's, it's like shrouded in this thing, like that we don't want to acknowledge happens and actually it, it I think makes you appreciate life more and it is going to happen to all of us yep. and it could happen any day. And I think a lot of my boldness and fearlessness that you talked about is my sense of like, I could die at any day and I better do everything I want to do here because it might not last that long. I always have felt like you never know whenever yep. people say, I can't believe I, I, I got diagnosed. Well, I can, you know, but my father was diagnosed actually quite young in my life. He was diagnosed with terminal cancer when I was four mm. and he tried an experimental uh, treatment and he did go into remission, but we used to talk about him dying all the time when I was really little. And then he lived another 30, 40 years, another 40, 35 years. But that's remarkable. Yeah. So I think living really boldly or fearless, the fearlessness is, I think for me, it comes from just feeling like you don't know. And so I remember when my dad was dying, he was like, there's just so many more books I want to write. He was also an author. There's so many more things I want to do. And I just try to live like, I just want to do everything I want to do. And I already, I mean, at 53, even with travel, I love to travel. And I recently went to Morocco, which was amazing. And somebody's like, would you go back there? And I was like, I would, but there's so many other places I've never been right. to before. I'm at that <laughs> right. point in life where I'm like, how many more summers do I have? Or how many more, I probably, you know, how many more big trips do I have in there? Like, I want to go to Africa. I want to go to India. I want to go to China. You know, like it's, it's interesting, but it also makes it exciting of like, I better, you know, I got a lot of things I want to do, a lot of films I want to make, a lot of books I want to write, a lot of art shows I want to do. <laughs> I got a, a really, lot to do. <laughs> no, it's a really good segue too. And, by the way, thank you so much for for sharing that. I, I'm I'm curious if your if your dad and mom, when they said reach for the stars and instill that in you, were expecting you to go into the creative realm and not the you know the academic route or mm -hmm. the or the uh, scientific route like they did or the mm -hmm. or healthcare. But you have this quote: filmmaking, writing, talks, performances, visual art are different ways to wrestle, investigate and explore ideas. And they all have unique creative constraints. And I love a good constraint. And oh I was God, thinking about that. Where'd you get that from? I love that. I'm like, did I say that? That's so true. <laughs> well, well I, I think I, I, it really stuck out to me because I feel the same way. And, and when you just said what you said, like, okay, the fact that you're going to die is a constraint. It's a constraint. It's an ultimate constraint. It's yeah. the ultimate constraint. You will die and you don't know when which is a crazy constraint of the unknown. So you better live the life you want to live. You better be with the people you want to be with. You better be the person your dog thinks you are. You don't know, you don't know when it's going to happen. And I think, um, so that you have to email me what I said, cause I forgot. That's the funny thing about getting older too, is like, <laughs> there's both the seeing the patterns and then the, I'm a, I do write a lot in my journal. Yeah. And it, it's not just like emotions. I read a lot of ideas and I love looking back to old journals and old ideas I had that I had forgotten about. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to do that idea again. And actually going back to my first failure, I, I overreached. I reached overreach for the stars when I was quite young, <laughs> and, but it's okay. Cause that's how you learn right, where right, you need to like learn to reach that far. But anyways, what the reason when I, kind of ran out of money the first time I ran out of money twice on that film is independent film, you know, and then I raised, I kept getting out of debt by waitressing. I worked for a professor. I was a professor's assistant and I would get out and then I would raise money and get out of debt and go back into debt and blah, blah. And then the third time I got depressed, I had my experience, my mm. first depression, which a lot of early twenties, like I'm just doing this film on the adolescent brain. And that is often you will go through a dark period in your early twenties it's a tricky time. You're like becoming a full adult, but I had a creative block, which I had never had before. Mm. And it was so scary to not only not know how to get, make this film work, but I felt like I had no more ideas. And one of the things mm. that I promised myself 
from that dark period was I would always write down any new idea I had. So I have books upon books. I mean, if you saw how many journals, as I am an avid journal writer, I have, must have like yeah. 40, 40 to 50 journals and baked in them in between like what's going on in my life are lots of ideas. And I markate them differently with like a star or a spiral to an idea. And I've always felt like if I ever had a creative block that I would go back to these journals and they would yeah. be like these breadcrumbs back to my creative mind. Now I'm knocking on wood that I have not had a creative block since then, but I have tools if I did. That's an example of, I think something really good that came out of that failure and feeling depressed in my early twenties was, you know, knowing how important it is to have things in your life to help you get out of things. And I think this new film I'm working on, The Adolescent Brain, you know, adolescents are going through so many new changes in their mind and new hormones and new feelings and, and knowing how to regulate. And like, I feel this way, I should go for a run. I feel this way, I should do this. I should talk to a friend. I should, I'm not having any creative ideas for me. It's like, and I'm going to look through all these journals where I have so many creative ideas. And so I think I love thinking of this toolbox I've developed in life as a filmmaker, as an artist, as somebody creating in the world that I go to yeah. as a maker in the world, you know? I do. I, and that must be kismet that you're bringing this up because I was just talking earlier today about the power of journaling and that one of my biggest regrets was that I did all this travel between 2010 and 2020 and I just didn't write down any of the things that I did. So somebody mm -hmm. said, Hey, what, what was that Italian restaurant you loved in Del Mar? I'm like, I don't remember it. I just I remember they had don't. great bolognese right. <laughs> I don't, and, and, and a really good Beaujolais. I don't, I don't remember <laughs> that they, I, I can't take you there. I didn't write down yeah. anything. I am, so I have, yes, I have yes. all these experiences and I can't really talk yes. about them unless I get lucky or it's somehow the yeah. phone, which is my, you know, my digital yeah. uh, overlord is like <laughs> earmarked everywhere I went in my life yeah. uh, because it's earmarking all the pictures you take or whatever. So it, the journaling is powerful. It's a, what a, what a cool way to get out of a creative funk. Well, That's also really yeah. smart. And even going back to how you were referencing journaling, um, Anais Nin, who's this incredible oh, writer. I love her. Yeah. yeah. And one of her quotes about journaling is I, I journal so I can live life twice. Mm. So that is also, you can relive like your travel journeys in such a more powerful way if you have that. And I think photos are great. I do take a lot of pictures and I, I have a whole process with that. Like I take so many pictures on the iPhone, like we're able to take so many pictures, but then at the end of every week, it's not like on a specific day, but I like, I heart, I favorite the ones I want to remember. And sometimes on an airplane, I will just like skip through the favorite moments of the last <laughs> year. And it, sometimes I'm doing it even of like a movie poster. It's not like, sometimes it's a visual or a line in a book or so it becomes, but I also find that the, the right, and usually on my days without screens, I do a like three hour journal session of writing about my week and what I'm thinking about. And I love processing that way. But, you know, going back to our, our, my father was a big traveler and fortunately my stepmother's still alive because I will call, I will call her and be like, what? He always had favorite rooms. He was one of those guys that like, <laughs> you got to go to this place, stay in this room, eat at this place. And I, it's not written down anymore. So fortunately she remembers some of them, but I wish, I wish, wish I had just like sat there and been like, okay, dad, all your favorite places, your favorite hotels and the room number and the places you went to for eating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I, your dad, your dad's yeah. a, a man of my own heart too. I, <laughs> if I'm going to give a recommendation, it's going to be uber specific just exactly. to show you like, this is the art of it. Yeah, I know it sounds weird to say, but it's no. like, no, there's an art to it. Like you, there's an oh, art of it. Totally. And if I, and if I just say, go to this place and I don't give you the specifics, yeah, then, I, then I was, this, a, I was a consumer. I didn't do anything yeah. with the art of it. Totally. I didn't appreciate the chef. I didn't appreciate the way the maitre d' came out, like all these things that you can, because yeah. how much better is your, you know, $50 steak or $60 steak when the service is incredible versus when it's terrible. Totally. It just yeah. makes all the difference, you know, in the world. I'm curious how your cultural identity. Yeah. I know you're Jewish, yeah. but there's more to it even than that. Mm-hmm how, how, how it has influenced your creative output. 
Yeah, I, well, first of all, I'm Jewish, but those of you that are seeing me, does everyone listen to it and watch it or some people just listen to it? I think some people just listen to it. Okay. So I can so describe I, or you can describe if you need well, to. Well, if you were yeah. to look at me, I present, I have light blue eyes and blonde hair and uh, my name is in Jewish. Mm. So I guess in other cultures, you would say I, I could pass as not because most of my life, it is my choice always to bring this up. Both of my parents are Jewish. I'm Ukrainian. Um, my, my grandparents escaped from Ukraine in the early 1900s. Um, but I say that because hmm. it's just an interesting way to go about the world because, um, you know, up until I didn't really explore my Jewish identity at all until I met my husband, who was also a blonde, blue-eyed Jew named Ken. And we're both yeah, like- shout out, to, shout out to Ken Goldberg. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. he, he grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where there was hardly any Jews. So yeah. we both like <laughs> had these interesting perspectives on being part of a, and you know, most people don't know like Jews is not just a religion. It's a culture. It's, it's a, a culture. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people don't believe, they don't have to believe in God and they can still be Jewish. And so- yeah. Um, and so in terms of anti-Semitism, so both Ken and I had family members die in the Holocaust. And so yeah. when you have grandparents and like that level being killed for who they are is just an interesting thing to wrestle with. So we've made a couple projects together, films that have dealt with that. And then I would say, you know, I've made a lot of films and I would say the different areas that they fall into would be like, you know, neuroscience, creativity, women's rights, Jewish identity, um, technology and nature, AI, mm. robotics, that kind of stuff. Basically a, <laughs> a, a of list things. of very, very heady. <laughs> <laughs> but I think like when you're asking about the identity part, like I'm definitely a feminist. I am such a feminist. I think I was put on this earth at this particular moment in history to like fight for women's rights and mm. people that aren't represented fully. So I've made a lot of films um, for Planned Parenthood and I'm working on this art piece that's going to go on the National Mall in D.C. And I I feel like the fearlessness. Let's go back to that. I was raised by two parents who believe I could do anything I wanted to do. I've never like as I've gotten older and I hear so many women that always feel like they're kind of coming from behind. They're trying to get rights or like I just I've always felt like I could do anything, <laughs> which is because of my parents. Thank you, parents, for instilling that in me. And I feel like it's my duty with that privilege to to pave the way for other people and um, other people that aren't represented. They don't have to be women. They don't have to be Jewish. They don't have to be. Um, but any kind of um, underrepresented group feels like important to widen that path. And I think if you looked at all of my documentaries, that's always been like, uh, I feel like I'm charged with that. And right. So, and you know, it's interesting being a Jewish white presenting woman in the world. Like I know I look like, I mean, I look like I'm just like probably of the most privileged in America. And yet I have this history where it's, there's been so much turmoil and there's so much anti-Semitism on the rise and it's all different forms of discrimination, but it's still there. And I, yeah. I'm so grateful. I have a, a channel with my activism and my documentaries to channel some of my feelings about all of this, but it definitely has driven a lot of my work. Yeah, for sure. You had me at a nice and in. So, <laughs> so I knew where you're coming from right, right away. Um, you, you know, earlier in the conversation, we mentioned your commencement speech at UC Berkeley and, you know, it's considered one of the best commencement speeches according to NPR, which I'm on the board of NPR and WPLN, oh, by the way. So cool. um, I found that out. I was like super pleased but that you you had this message to to those students back in 2010 that um, you're going to have to go out and sort of pull this pull what string are you going to pull in the universe and, yeah. and so the old John Muir quote and you know are you going to go out and and live this this bold life and now here we are in 23 we've had a pandemic we're kind of mm -hmm. going through a recession I think the stuff that's going on at the white house level is kind of insane where let's just, let's just call a spade a spade. We're kind of forced into two bad choices. Yeah. Like, I don't think there's a lot of people that are super gung ho about yeah. Biden. And I don't think there's 
pe- I think people are exhausted by Trump. Yeah. And I would say I'm one of them, but it's, uh, and so we just want a different choice. So, so yeah. would you change your message for today's students at all? Looking back on that speech? That's a great question. It's an interesting thing. So one of the, at that particular moment, we were in a recession. Mm-hmm. When I gave that a speech, true, and, when, that, and when I graduated yeah. in 1992 from UC Berkeley, we were in a recession. And it's an interesting time to graduate because, you know, when you're not in a recession, there's like all these job offers and like you have all these opportunities. But when there's a recession, you have to go deeper on like, what do I really want to do? Because there might not be a job. Are you going back to school, to graduate school? Are you like, what do you really want to do? Because it's not like just being offered to you on a, you know, when you're in a boom time. my husband's a professor. So he'll be like, Oh my God, there's companies just at the door of all the graduates, like wanting to offer them jobs. And when there's a recession, it isn't like that. So you have to work harder to think, what do I want to do in this world? Which I think is an opportunity to dig deeper when it's like money's not being offered or, you know, you have to really figure out what you want to do. And I, I still, to this day, like, what do you want to contribute to this world? Like I've never been, driven by money. I've been driven by meaning and purpose. I'm probably like a fault. I mean, I'm like, can I just be a little bit more driven? Um, no, I'm just joking. But, um, (laughs) I just still think like, you know, finding what your purpose is in this world. And I think everyone, um, has a different purpose and everyone has different gifts. And, um, I'm always thinking, how are you gonna make the world better? Yeah. How are you going to contribute? So impact is really important to you. Yeah. Making a difference. Um, COVID was really interesting because I think the gift of COVID, although it was so difficult and so many people lost their lives, the gift part was people around the world were asking really big philosophical questions about like, what's important to me? Where do I want to live? Who do I want to be with? These are the big questions in life that normally you're only faced with if you're given a death sentence, you're told you're going to have a cancer or you... Um, you know, somebody close to you dies. Usually that's when you're like, oh my God, how do I want to live? And I feel like everyone was really given these very big questions. So I think ultimately uh, a lot of people, a lot of people that I know changed where they live, what they did, you know, you know, I hope they, they keep those messages, but you know, we're always, we're in an experiment of being humans and, I mean, even recently with ChatGPT, which we haven't talked about, but I'm thinking about a lot of how much that is the new AI models are going to change what we're doing and how they're changing filmmaking and film distribution and what people are investing in. But the greatest quality of humans is our ability to adapt and evolve. And I made this one film called The Adaptable Mind, and it's a 10 minute film about like our strengths is that we can adapt. Yep. So I think any graduate, your biggest and and not to interject, but people underestimate others' ability. They they underestimate our species' ability to adapt, and in turn underestimate their own ability to adapt. That's right. And so they bet short on humans and bet long on things like AI. And oh, that's and, such a good way to and, put it. And, and I'm in the David humans. Deutsch camp where I'm like, AI is really far away from a human being yes. because if you ask. Chat GPT something or Bard, it gives you a really smart answer, but it also is really dumb about other things. Yeah, really dumb, almost childlike. Yeah. So we're, we're you know now on the other hand, I'll say the thing that makes AI different is that it does it does improve at a pace that I haven't seen any tech improve. That so true that's and true. I mean, different. You know, yes, yes. I loved your framing. We're going short on humans, and I've made several films that have explored that, like humans are like incredible brains and we have a range of emotions with empathy and, and taking initiative and all these things that robots and mm-hmm. AI isn't going to be able to do, but AI is incredible. Also like my husband's a professor in robotics and AI. He, he, he's amazed by the leap we just took. Yeah. And so, but it's incredible to collaborate with. Like, it's like the super intern. It's the amazing research assistant. I'm working on a new script and I'm asking it lots of questions to help me kind of brainstorm. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. like I, I never come from fear. I'm not a fear based person in general. I just feel like, oh, look at this new thing we've created and we're going to evolve with and we're going to figure out new ways to use. And I think, um, you know, Trump and 
that kind of fear-based leadership style is just like, ah, like why come from fear? Let's come from potential abundance, the potential of this. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a better place to come from. Yeah. I mean, I, I, so I think we just need to be talking about it for sure. Like it's kind of all we're talking about in this household because it's so fascinating and and how amazing that we're alive at this moment. I'm always like, I'm so glad we're around for this one because I was around at the beginning of the web and I was like, that's going to change the world and it didn't. (laughs) This is going to change the world and it will. (laughs) And like, what can we do with it? Yeah. It's remarkable to live through this time. And there's like this semi-secret and I forget the producer's name, but there was a producer that compiled this semi-secret list of AI for film apps on a giant Google doc. Oh, oh <laughs> it's a, the Doug block. Is it the D word? Oh no, I don't know. So I can't remember his name. I can't remember. Uh, his name. I think it's uh, cause I, and my women film, but I have, group, but like, I have this list. I have that like list this, too. It's amazing. Look at you air depth. Boom. Yeah, we will. <laughs> we should drop it into the listeners. Cause it's like all these supporting resource tools that are AI and filmmaking, which are amazing. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to put it in the newsletter. Yeah. In put newsletter. it in the, yeah, for sure then everybody in indie film can sort of have this list that the studio filmmakers are using. Yeah. It's interesting. It is. Yeah. It's kind of cool. And the list is like somewhat inexhaustible. (laughs) Exactly. Like it's like, like it just Uh, keeps going. There's so many tools being made every single day for filmmakers. And you talked about a researcher. That's one of its best. That's one of the best tools is its ability to compile incredibly disparate and esoteric uh, pieces of data and then compile them and organize them in a way that's very easily to consume for a human being like in a table and it's yeah it's powerful like you use it that way it is truly like a superpower for a filmmaker so kudos kudos for for bringing that up and most Um, independent filmmakers can't afford a big research team so it's like well we just got it for you for free (laughs) ding 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 exactly that just take that completely off i mean i was talking to someone earlier today about you know it's gonna take away jobs yes it will but and then it'll add new jobs like when photography came around and was like oh my god there's gonna be no need for painters anymore well of course there's they just evolved and adapted and Exactly. A Photoshop, right? It's just like, it's taking one thing and adding another thing. So I do think things are additive and some things are removed, but then other things are added. Like the energy has to go somewhere. It's like, we just took away that job for you, but we're adding this need now. So it's like, and we're part of that. And if you feel empowered by that process, you're going to be part of it. And you feel fear, then you're going to be, you're not going to be part of it. And so that's the strength of humans is our ability to adapt and evolve. Exactly. And as you know, I'm a musician and I have some friends who are not musicians and they are kind of like, well, you know, now AI can do all this stuff. And I'm like, first of all, (laughs) don't cut us short. (laughs) First of all, let me, let me hear a song that I actually like and will play. Not just something that's amazing because it did a thing, but it's a really good song that you'll sing for 20 summers in a row. But then the other thing is that people always think there's this horn of plenty for like the 1% talented. It's like AI is copying Drake. It is copying Kanye West. It is copying Michael Jackson. It is copying. But, but when they're done copying them, and let's say you bankrupt music, who's going to be the next Drake yeah. or Michael Jackson or totally. Barbara Streisand or whoever? Yeah. Like there's no horn of plenty. There still has to be somebody that AI can imitate. Totally. Cause and it's not going to yeah. make its own voice and, and, and it and be good enough for people to dig it and want to buy it and relate to it. I have a musician friend that said, uh, or I, no, you know what? I saw this actually on a writer strike sign uh, for WGA. It was like, AI didn't have childhood trauma. It's like, wow. and it's like without, without that, what's compelling? Like wow. so a lot of this art comes out. It's, it's therapy. You know, I think Frank Ocean says something similar as well, by the way. I have a line and I do this monthly newsletter. I don't know. Do you, have you gotten one of those? I've done it for like 25 I need years. One. I need yeah, to get it's, it. It's called yeah. breakfast at Tiffany's and you can just Tiffany. Schlein. Oh, I know about this. Yeah. And, and I think I, in my last month of the month, I said, you know, chat GPT is, compiling everything since 2019 all human knowledge 
You're compiling it from the year and day you were born. And only you have that particular unique perspective. And you could add in there childhood trauma, this specific travel experience. (laughs) You're the only one that has that unique perspective. That's your value to the conversation is your unique perspective. AI is saying, I have the whole world. I have all of human knowledge's perspective, which is an interesting perspective, but it's not your specific perspective, which is why I remember when I was writing my book or documenting people, oh, that subject's been done. But I'm like, but no one's made it from this brain, this set of experiences. So I, and actually I put myself in my film and I only kind of had that breakthrough midway through my filmmaking journey as I was like, trying to make these films about everything. And then I I think my films got a lot stronger when I'm like, actually, I'm usually in the film just for a very tiny bit at the beginning, the middle and the end. And it's like, this is my perspective. I can only share with you this issue from my perspective. That's what I have to bring to this conversation. Yeah. And I feel like that has really been a strength in my work is just owning that and leaning into it. So when you were asking earlier about my identity or who I am. I used to hire, you know, I had Harrison Ford narrate a film. I had like Peter Coyote. I had all these men. And then I was like, wait, why am I having a man narrate movie? And then I had a British woman narrate the movie. Wait, why do I have somebody else? She sounds British and intelligent. I'm going to narrate my own movies. And that was such a breakthrough of like, these are my thoughts. I'm <laughs> going to narrate valid. my own. You are worthy to narrate uh, your own so movie. It was a yeah. process of like, what is the authoritative voice? And instead of going to a ther- authoritative voice, what is just the specific voice? And that's me. And I think everyone has specific stories that are fascinating because their own specific experiences. Yeah. If words were stocks, I would buy a ton of shares in the word authenticity. Yes. Because <laughs> that's what yeah. you're going to need in this era. That's right. Your no humanity, question. your authenticity, your uniqueness, that's what's going to make you stand out. That's 100% right. I, yeah. You talked about perspective. Do you have a perspective you can share with this audience on what you've learned about the intersection between all the multi-hyphenates you're involved in, uh, technology, culture, society, all that? I mean, that everything's interconnected. I mean, I made a film called Interdependence, a declaration of Mm -hmm. interdependence. Everything's connected. And that's the John Muir quote too. To get a single strand in the universe, you find it's connected to everything else. So it's all connected. So you can either work on your area that you can affect will have a ripple effect. My film studio is called let it ripple because it all ripples out into all the other parts when you do strong, powerful work in Mm -hmm. your perspective that you can add to, and that it'll affect the bigger picture. How is let it ripple different than other studios? We don't do other people's stuff. I mean, I, there was a while there, I was getting a lot of emails like, will you make, and I'm like, no, no, we only, I mean, (laughs) films take so, we don't, not as, we're not a production company. I guess that's, and I've really learned how to like the language. We're a studio. We're, we're really only doing projects that come out of my striving, yearning curiosity or some issue I'm passionate about. Um, And then we're also pretty known for, having that kind of global activations around the documentaries. We did like global conversation online. Um, we premiered, we've premiered movies at all the reputable, you know, the reputable places and stuff. We've also premiered them where we let schools and people premiere the film. We're really interested in experimenting with all of that. Yeah. So I don't know. Again, I think we're unique just because it's the people, every production company is unique because they have their own perspective. Hopefully. And yeah, yeah. So for you guys, it's it's about the authenticity of of the work that you guys are producing in house. Yeah. So the way you get something done at Let It Ripple is just to go work for for you, right, Tiffany? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. If you want to work with Let It Ripple, go get a job at Let It Ripple. <laughs> That's exactly. Right. And actually, you know, it's funny. I have a I have a small core team, but then a, a same group of like animators and composers, sound designers. I've worked with for so many years, which is so nice. That's another great thing about getting older. It's just that history. I was on with an animator in Iceland who I've worked with for years. And I was talking about this new animation for this film on the adolescent brain. And I just started to say this and she's like, oh my gosh, I was thinking the same thing. And she, it was just so much fun. I'm like, that's why I love working together. Like we have such a history and we can reference other films we've made. And uh, it's just it's a beautiful thing. And my producer I've worked with for 17 years. So we've made like 30 different films together. I mean, they're, they're not 30 long form, but they're short, but I call every film we make a film because they take their whole experience. Yeah, I mean, it, it is what it is. Yeah. And, and something we say all the time, we want to play long-term games with long-term players exactly. and, and no mercenaries. And so exactly. I know everybody has to have a first job, but 
for us, it's like, okay, this is your first gig. We need to hang out with you for a little while. Exactly. You know, You're gonna, it's going to get so much better. I come from the music world a little yeah. bit where the producer, before they can produce an artist, has to go have dinner with you, has to take a walk around the block with you 70 times just so they know how to even present your work to the world through yeah, music. Yeah, like, I love to hear your music. And actually, I have to go soon. I'm so enjoying We could talk all day. We could. And <laughs> like, I want to hear your music, so you have to send that over. I will. I'll send everything. We have three feature yeah. films all in global distribution too. I oh I gosh. want you to check check one of those out. Uh, watch a watch a film called Another Version of You. Ooh, I love that title. It's it's yeah iTunes what Amazon is it about? everywhere. It's about a man who watches the love of his life marry someone else. He then gets presented with a key that opens up doors to parallel universes. So oh he embarks God. on an adventure to find a version of this woman who will love him back. Oh, I love that's such an incredible premise. Yeah. And the, the stakes are super high because anytime you go through the door, you can never go back. Wow. So you lose everything and everyone you had in the world you were in oh forever. That's an, an intense thought experiment. Wow. Okay. <laughs> send that to me. Yeah. Shout out and to Maki Dap. Send that. And, and I want to hear your music too. I, I will. I'm going to okay, skip sorry. some questions. And no, you're all good. And we're going to get into some of these. Um, I call them just great sort of like bonsai filmmaker questions, things that okay. our filmmaker, our audience would want to know. And so first and foremost, you've done a ton of things and you're an author in your own regard. So you have your book 24, six, mm -hmm. which everyone should go buy. Everyone should get. Mm -hmm. What other books do you recommend for creatives and filmmakers? Yeah. Well, I, I would love, yeah. I mean, my book 24, six, really was my, my journey, obviously a big advocate for technology and then realizing it was taking over my brain and all my waking moments. So I have a full day each week since my dad died, um, where I turn off all screens for one day. And I'm telling you as a creative, all my best ideas happen on that day. And the reason I know wow. is I journal and all the best ideas happen when I don't have the screens on and I let my mind do its magic instead of giving it all this new input. And because I make a lot of films about neuroscience, I know that you need to make space for your mind to work its magic with what's already in there instead of all this new information coming. So my book, 24-6, I really go into that. And then um, other books, well, this also goes to um, creativity is... Uh, the Artist's Way, which is also about journaling mm -hmm. in the morning, three pages, just like free flow. Um, and then the other book that's been incredibly helpful, in addition to all my long-term journaling, is each day I do the five-minute journal, which is a mm -hmm. really powerful, um, just five minutes in the morning and five minutes before you go to bed. And it's a nice guide. And those those creatively are very powerful to me. What is your approach to marketing so when you make a film i mean I'm, i've got the founder of the webby awards on here and I, so i have to ask what is your approach to getting the word out about your creative work i think everyone listening should start a newsletter like all these social media channels are really cool but there's other companies that are controlling the algorithm and who sees your work i mean sometimes i'm on instagram i see the certain same 10 people and then and then i don't see them anymore there was a friend that I followed for years and I went to look at her stuff and it's like, do you want to follow her? I'm like, I never unfollowed her. Like I, you have no control what's happening. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, other people are controlling who you see, what you see. The newsletter is your direct link. I've had a newsletter for 25 years, once a month. You're thinking, how do you start a newsletter? Well, you start it with just your family and friends and, and then you add a button that says, did you get forwarded this email? <laughs> Subscribe, put it on your website, put it in social. Yep. Now I have, you know, 40,000 people that have followed me for all my different projects. I release it once a month. I don't charge. I'm just like saying what I'm working on, but here's the best part. I also say what other people are working on. So what I'm interested in, my people on my newsletter will probably be interested in. So like when we do this podcast, I will include it in there. You get my newsletter, but if you want to hear a conversation with Chris, we had this great conversation last month, check it out. And I just feel like newsletters are the way to market, especially in this world where everyone's putting all this pressure on social media, but your newsletter is your direct, intimate way to connect with your audience. I love that. It's your, your true fans. Imagine I came to you 
for an advice session consultation with Tiffany. Yeah. That sounds like a, should be the name of a movie as well. Uh, <laughs> is there a strategy you can share with, uh, for how to, let's say, get noticed by the Webby Awards? Like what would be your strategy if you were, if your goal was to get a Webby Award? Yeah. Well, the Webby Awards are tonight actually in New York. Wow. <laughs> I know. Good timing to ask that question. So, okay. I ran it for the first decade and then I sold yeah. it 17 years ago. So they have changed some things, but they haven't changed other things. So the biggest way to possibly get a Webby nomination is to apply. Most people okay. don't even realize that. No, no, but it's funny because um, yeah, I, I did this original series called The Future Starts Here. Um, this was two seasons of it, um, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And out of the blue, I got an email that I was nominated for an Emmy Award. And I was so excited. And I was like, how did that happen? And then I asked the streamer, they're like, oh, we entered. And most people don't realize that step number one <laughs> is you have to apply. No one's going to just like be looking out into the world. Only you, like only you care about your project as much as you do. And so many of these honors and accolades you have to apply for. And for the Webbies, they've got lots of different categories. And, you know, it costs money to enter. Um, but if you want to be considered in you know, like, oh, I don't know if I'm this category, that category. I would apply for all four categories because, and I have no financial interest in it anymore at all, zip zero, but you're upping your odds if you think there's, and there's so many categories now. Like when we started the Webbies, I think there was like 20 categories. I mean, I don't even know how many categories there are. There must be hundreds. <laughs> they have a whole film division with all the subcategories, but apply, apply. And I would say that for anything, apply for the grant, apply for the thing, apply for the residency that, you know, that very act is you putting yourself forward into the world in a new light. And I think that's empowering and important. And I think that's number one. Very quick side note. Why did you decide to give it up? Why did you decide to sell? You know, I was a filmmaker before the web, like I was making independent films. Okay. I told you I got into debt over my films, always brain. And I always worked in technology to get out of debt. Yeah. And I was working in technology and then I saw the early web and I was like, that's going to change the world and started the Webby Awards. And it was like a rocket ship. It just grew into this massive thing. And it, and I want to get back to filmmaking. I mean, after doing it for almost a decade, it was like every year I would try to one up myself what we did to honor people <laughs> and make these films about technology. It was great. And I love that part of my career. And I'm so glad I'm not doing it anymore because it, it was it got a little groundhog day for me creatively because I was yeah. doing the same thing every year, uh, even though I was like trying to expand what it was. And I wanted to get back to filmmaking and apply everything I had learned by honoring the web with my own work with distribution. So that's what I've been doing. I love it. Just a couple more questions and we'll get you out of here. I did notice that you had an interest in Douglas Rushkoff. Yeah, and he's a good, the, he's an old the, friend of mine. The, the media yeah. theorist, his idea about open source to fix open sourcing to fix social problems really jumped out to me. Mm -hmm. What's, how did you get into him and, and, and what do you believe about him? I think I met him at one of the first Webby Awards and, um, you know, we're interested in the same things. We've written a lot about the same subjects or he's written a lot of books. I've only written one book, but, um, the talk subjects we give, the film subjects are wrestling with ideas around technology and humans. So, but yeah, open sourcing um, subjects is super interesting. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Douglas is a great, he's an old friend of mine at this point. And it's, <laughs> I, again, another thing I love about getting, Douglas. Yeah, he's been, uh, he's really fun to talk to about ideas. He's one of my favorite. I mean, I, I have like a list of like, you know, besides my like, well, my father's passed and my, my husband, my daughters. Um, and then there's like a group of minds that I'm like working on a new subject and I will call them and be like, what do you think about this? <laughs> He's one of those people. Yeah. I would imagine he would have to be awesome to have in that group. Oh uh, yeah. Just, a, yeah. just one of my, the, one of the people in my think tank is a media. Exactly. <laughs> He's a great <laughs> think tank member. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of all the things you've worked on and, um, your lovely book. Can you, can you tell us where uh, we can find you on social media, where yeah. we can find you on the internet, buy some of your work, even support, uh, sign up for your newsletter, that. et cetera. So um, my name, just Tiffany Schlain, there's no C in my last name. So S H L A I N.com is my main mothership website. You can get my book from there. My social handles are just all at Tiffany Schlain. 
Um, you can sign up for the newsletter and see all my films um, from that URL and then find out about my art, my artwork. Um, I have this exhibit that just happened that we're bringing to New York and DC. We want to bring it to the South. Maybe we'll visit you. And then I have a new art show in LA with the um, Getty Museum specific standard time. And it's going to be at the Skirball in 2024. And then this adolescent brain film will come out next year. So if you sign up for the newsletter, you'll always be kept abreast of what I'm working on, other cool things that people I know are working on, and just stay connected. It's amazing. And Tiffany, we'll, we'll end on this. Following your father's death in 2009, you and your siblings worked together to edit the manuscript of his final book, uh, Leonardo's Brain, Understanding Da Vinci's Creative Genius. In finishing that manuscript, what was the most surprising thing you and your siblings learned about Da Vinci's genius and your dad's genius? It's hmm. a great question. Well, first of all, it's really good for parents to give their kids something to work on together after they're gone. That's huge. <laughs> because in a lot of ways, just like what you were saying, it keeps like the generational conversation going. Mm -hmm. And Da Vinci was an incredibly unique mind because he both had a strong right and left brain thinking with science and art. And so did my father. Um, and that that's, I think, a real strength in our society is if you can speak in both languages and be a translator of sorts and a convener. Yeah. That's beautiful. And what a great place to stop. And uh, I know we're going to do a round two. There's uh, so much more fun. Oh, to have. You're so much fun to talk to. I, I would love to do a round two. I've really, really enjoyed this. And I'm so I feel like just so grateful that you reached out and we're doing this. It's great. Yeah, I feel the same way. I feel like you're the type of person where you talk for five minutes, but you feel like you've known them your whole life. At least that's how I feel right now. I, I feel, know, like I feel like we would hang out if we, if we lived in the same town, I would love to have you over for Shabbat dinner. <laughs> I would love to do that. I would love to do Shabbat dinner. And if, um, if I'm in LA. Oh, I'm soon, in the Bay area. Okay. Or I mean, San Francisco, I should have said that. I no, it's okay. A lot also, of people assume that I'm in LA because the filmmaker, but documentary filmmakers are mostly in the Bay area. And I knew you were in San Francisco and I'm just like, cause of, cause of Shaq 15, I just said LA yeah, cause I'm okay. so used to it. That's but okay. when you come to Nashville, key to the city. Yes, I would definitely, I'm going to, I want to come. So we will have a meal. You'll take me to your favorite place there. I will. I'll take you to my favorite place there for sure. <laughs> I have a short list and you'll love all of it. Just tell me what kind of food you like. Okay. And then just let me know if the Bay area is like, people are reporting or is that all hyperbole? Like when I went there, the times I've been there, it's always been great, but now I hear it can be a little shady. I mean, here's the thing. I I've seen this town go through so many periods of growth, Renaissance, dark periods, rebirth. I believe in it just like humans, you know, it's just like, <laughs> I, it's definitely, I mean, there is a big homelessness problem here and I okay. don't know what the solution is. And it's so many people and money and trying to figure it out. And I, it's heartbreaking because I mean, it really goes back to um, Ronald Reagan when he was governor, like mm -hmm. closed down all these mental institutions. And so not that those are the solution. Amen. I don't know what the solution is. No, no, no. A, you, you just nailed it. <laughs> I, I mean, think so you just nailed it. It's just so um, tragic, really. I so, but I love the Bay, and I believe in it, and I believe that it is going through something. But there are definitely lots of parts that are still fabulous, and I think there's like challenges, like any major city right now. Yeah, um, I think you nailed it. I've been preaching that for the last decade. My father worked in mental health for thirty oh, years. Yeah, and when that funding got cut, people oh. just don't understand. Like it isn't like the movies, their family, you know, it's not like a, a rich guy tired of the capitalism. Yes. So he's deciding to be homeless and really he's exactly. got, no, almost people, every one of those homeless people have support. a mental ill. Yeah. yeah they, they should need, be uh, in I, a place. Exactly. And so it's just so, it's so sad. And that's the majority of and their family can't take that on. If you have kids and a husband, you can't take on your, your mentally yeah. ill brother full yeah. time in your house. Totally. It's you just can't put your family in that kind of predicament. And yeah. the, the end result is the streets. And yeah. so maybe, yeah, we can talk offline about that. But. <laughs> no, that is a, yeah.
Oh my gosh, Chris, you're amazing. Thank you. And you're more amazing. Great, great to be here with you. I look forward to staying connected. And Chris will have a part two for sure. Part two coming up. Thanks, okay. everybody. Talk Bye. soon, Tiff. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at underscore Bonsai Creative, and on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. In addition, you can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we are trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please consider supporting our Patreon page. We spend a combined 35 hours a week producing each episode. We do this with a small team of go-getters that are passionate about film and connecting people with similar interests across the globe. And we have lots of goodies in store for our supporters, including bonus content, exclusive swag, and discounts and freebies to private film events. If that sounds like something you can get behind, donations start at only $5 monthly. And of course, If you're looking to take a big step toward your film's financial success, go to www.banzai.film and click on services to explore our unrivaled approach to film marketing. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.